1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophy. Today's interview is with Christina Musholt. Professor of Cognitive Anthropology in the Department of Philosophy at Leipzig University. Her new book, Thinking About One's Self, From Non-Conceptual Content to the Concept of a Self, is just out from the MIT Press. When Descartes famously concluded, I think, therefore I am, he took for granted his ability to use the first-person pronoun to refer to himself. But how do we come to have this capacity for self-conscious thought? We aren't born with it, and while we may not be the only creatures that can think thoughts about ourselves, this ability does not seem to be very widespread. For starters, to be able to think of oneself, it seems one must first possess a concept of the self, of what the I refers to. In thinking about oneself, muscle provides a naturalistic account of how self-conscious thought develops how we may move from possessing implicitly self-referential information to having explicit self-representation, and how an entity that may think, using non-conceptual resources, can develop concepts that refer to items in the world, including, in particular, to oneself. Nussault defends what she calls a no-self view, in which the self is not an object that we refer to, but instead a mode of presentation, And that the development of a self-concept is driven by social relationships and the need for intersubjective information. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, Hello, Christina Musalt.
2: Yeah, hello. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Um, So I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, Thinking About One's Self, from non-conceptual content to the concept of a self. Um, And... Uh, you give a what you call a no self view which itself sounds a little bit um, uh, contradictory but yeah uh, right. you do explain it and and we'll get into that uh, but before we begin getting into the book itself maybe you could tell us a bit about about yourself and your background I mean you're you're a philosopher of uh, of professor of cognitive anthropology in a philosophy department, but you're you're a PhD and your background is is in philosophy and and cognitive science. So maybe you could say a bit Mm -hmm. about about your background and how you came to write this book.
2: Yeah. So it depends a little bit on how far back you want to go, but I suppose I was always kind of interested in philosophy on the one hand, uh, since I was a teenager, but also in biology, neuroscience, cognitive science for a long time. So initially, when I started studying at university, my plan was to become uh, a neuroscientist. But then I kind of discovered that a lot of the questions that had um, fascinated me as a teenager, as I said, um, sort of continued to fascinate me and that I couldn't really answer them. Um, or couldn't even really find them asked in the way that I thought they should be asked in um, the courses that I was taking as part of the biology and the neuroscience program. And so I started going to philosophy lectures and seminars um, and really found myself much more at home there. But for a long time, I couldn't really decide whether I really professionally wanted to be a philosopher or rather a natural scientist, partly, you know, because everybody says You'll never get a job as a philosopher and so on. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, even though I, I found neuroscience really fascinating, I did a master's degree in neuroscience, and I continue to find it very fascinating. Questions um, regarding, for instance, the nature of the self, um, what really makes us human, um, those sort of things, I felt I couldn't really answer properly as a neuroscientist And so therefore I decided ultimately To do a PhD in philosophy Although with a view To empirical sciences as well So what I try to do in my research is um, Really try to bring philosophy And uh, empirical sciences In particular the cognitive sciences Into some kind of fruitful dialogue With each other
1: Okay well that the book certainly does Demonstrate that um, So you're, you're considering the problem Of, of- what you sometimes call self consciousness or or our ability to think thoughts that we of about something that we refer to with the uh with the first person pronoun the i mm-hmm. um, right. can you explain what what is
2: gripping about this problem for you or why it's a problem yeah, so I mean first of all, when you look at the history of philosophy, you sort of find that self consciousness Um, comes up again and again in a lot of classical theories. It sort of takes center center stage with a lot of um, philosophers. And I think that's no coincidence because I do think that this ability to think I thoughts, to think about ourselves lies at the heart of um, many things that we consider to be essential um, to what we are as humans and, and what fascinates philosophers, including the ability to ask ask questions of moral significance, for example. Um, but then the other thing that makes self... So so it's an, it's an ability that I, I think is very, very important and very um, dear to us um, and therefore important to understand what that actually is. Um, and at the same time, this kind of knowledge that we gain by thinking about ourselves, so self-knowledge does seem to be rather different in some ways from the kind of knowledge that we... Uh, Gain about other objects uh, in the world and, and even other people, although in some ways it's different, in some ways it's not. But, but yeah, so I guess for reasons that we'll get into um, a little bit later, I suppose, this kind of way um, of, of accessing knowledge or information seems to be rather different from ways we have of gaining knowledge of of other things in the world. And so um, that kind of makes it puzzling. So one way in which this puzzle is expressed is then in the failure of various traditional models that we do find in philosophy um, that attempt to explain disability which, um, as I try to show in the book, end up often either being circular or problematic in other ways or essentially presupposing what they attempt to explain. And so uh, in some level, this sort of the central question remains unanswered in a lot of these models
1: okay one one of the things that you you bring up uh, you know in terms of the circularity in particular um, um, there's there are arguments that you that you go through at the beginning uh that are based on the idea that you, you're sort of on the the model of reference that we have of 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 concepts that refer to, uh, things, uh, you know, concept of a book, you know, and Mm -hmm. of course the word book will refer to various books and and we have names for people, but, Mm -hmm. um, for some, for, for reasons that you, you spell out, uh, this particular relationship of, of, having a concept refer to an object or, or a, the term for it, such as I refer to it, is kind of problematic and thought to be circular in the case of self-reference. Could you, right. could you say something about that?
2: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess one way of uh, getting to the heart of this problem is by thinking uh, about, well, let me, well, how do how do I, um, Try to explain this well. I I, I think intuitively, perhaps a lot of us think that we have a very there's a very intimate relation that each of us has about to ourselves, right? So I mean, Frege said speaks of this very special way in which we think about ourselves, and in which we we can't think about other people or other objects, and you find this intuition expressed also um, in phenomenology. You know, people talking about this. the sense of mindness, this sort of primitive sense of self, the fact that we're always already acquainted with ourselves and experience all these sort of thoughts, um, I think already point to this very special relationship, um, that we have to ourselves. That's not, um, as a lot of phenomenologists are uh, sort of quick to point out, it's not the relationship, um, of something to an object. So, um, Phenomenologists often say the way in which I'm aware of myself is not as an object, but as a subject, um, as a subject of experience, as a subject of thought, as a subject of um, agency or action. Um, and I've, I'm very sympathetic to these ideas that um, are expressed in phenomenological traditions, though I often also find them a little bit mysterious. And so coming from the analytical tradition more myself, one thing that I try to do is try to um, combine these insights that we find in phenomenology with um, the sort of more analytical method of trying to spell things out that we find in, anal- in analytical science. But, yeah, coming back to this, this this object model, so it's often said that that the subject-object model kind of goes back to Descartes, um, and the idea is, is how do we gain knowledge about things? Well, it's by, um, you know, referring to them by, t- by, by standing in, in a certain relation to them, gaining information about them. Um, identifying them, picking out features. Um, so, for instance, with the books, you know, what makes a book a book? Well, there's certain features that um, identify a book as a book, and I can put, I can pick these out in in, uh, in perception and other modalities and kind of give a description of what makes a book a book. Um, but the idea is that uh, again, with the self, that's not the case. And um, apart from this kind of intuition that the relation that we have ourselves is not that of uh, relation to an object, um, we can see that this model can't apply to self-consciousness when we consider this regress problem that has was first pointed out by Fichte in the tradition of German idealism, um, and but then also um, has been popularized more recently by people like Manfred Frank, um, Dieter Henrich and others. Uh, in the German-speaking tradition and also in the analytical tradition by people like Schumacher. And again, I think it also is echoed in the phenomenological tradition. And so the idea is there is, well, look, um, if self-consciousness was a form of object cognition, um, we would end up with a kind of regress because how do I know that a certain feature that I perceive – is a feature of mine that is that it's, uh, a property that I can ascribe to myself in order to know that it seems I would already have to have some previous self knowledge that would allow me to to perform that kind of act of self description and so then we would end up in a, in a kind of regress and so the idea is that in order to um, stop that regress or to get self-knowledge or self-consciousness off the ground to begin with, there needs to be this kind of more primitive or more intimate knowledge that is always already there, as some people like to say. Um, and I think that, there's, that that intuition is right, but what I found dissatisfying, as I said before, in certain phenomenological ways um, of putting that, but also in the ways in which Manfred Frank and others are putting it, is that they say that it's kind of you know, primitive and not further analyzable, and you know some, somehow just there. And I think that's that's kind of dissatisfying. And so one one of the things that I was trying to do is um, trying to see if we could maybe get a better grip on this kind of notion of this primitive sense of self or mindness.
1: Okay, so you you reject the object the the subject object model, um, and you call that the the no self view. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, as I mentioned before, it seems it, it sounds sort of contradictory in the sense yeah. that you're 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 giving an explanation of the of self-reference, self-consciousness, which says there, but there is no self, right? Um, so could you could you explain that and how you how how you resolve that issue with uh, you you introduce the idea or, or adopt the idea, I should say, of, of most of Presentation. So, could you mm-hmm. could you say the what the no self view amounts to, and in your words?
2: Yeah. So, um, well, let me start by saying that perhaps in retrospect, that was not the smartest way of um, labeling my view. Uh-huh. <laughs> as, as has been pointed out, also um, I think uh, correctly by um, by a re- review that Danza Harvey. I gave of my book. I mean, um, I'll explain why I chose that label, but it can be misleading in the sense that um, I don't want to relate my view in any way to um, the sort of views that say that um, this, there is no self or the self is just an illusion or something like that. Right. You find you find those theories certainly mm-hmm. in philosophy as well, and um, I don't want to uh, associate my view with those kind of views. Yes. I don't think that the self is an illusion or that it doesn't exist Uh, or anything like that. The no-self also really doesn't refer to um, self-conscious states as such, but rather to the experiential states that I believe ground self-consciousness. So going back to this idea of this primitive sense of mindness that's meant to then ground kind of higher or more reflective forms of self-consciousness, as phenomenologists sometimes put it, um, I thought one view um, that, again, is coming like my own, more from the analytical tradition, um, that was perhaps promising to get get a better grip on that. Is this um, theory of non-conceptual self-consciousness that was proposed by Jose Um So I found I used that kind of a, as a springboard for my own um, uh, for my own book. Um, the idea there is that look, what explains our ability uh, to think? I thoughts, um, where you know ph- most philosophers agree that I thoughts are really thoughts that do. Require concepts, at least those that really we really then express linguistically when we actually you know say things like I'm hungry, I believe this and that, I intend to do so and so. Um, so what explains that ability? Um, and Bermudez's idea is that we have so in a sense there is a there is a non-conceptual way of thinking about oneself that we're already born with and that we're also sharing with um, non-human animals. And the way he explains this is by saying that, look, take, for instance, a simple perceptual state, like, you know, I'm looking at this laptop in front of me now. Um, The self is already there in that perceptual content, because effectively what it might seem to you that in looking at the computer, I'm just, you know, gaining information about the computer, but um, inspired by theories in psychology, in particular Gibson's theory of ecological perception, the idea is the self is also part of the content of that experience. For instance, um, I see this computer as being uh, in a particular distance from myself. I see it at at a particular angle, um, from a particular perspective, and I also perceive certain affordances, like I can type on the keyboard, I can move the computer around, I can close the lid. And so on and so forth. And so that information, the distance and orientation of myself in relation to the laptop, the ways in which I can interact with the laptop, that's information about myself, right? And so the idea is, look, the self is already there. Uh, and then what we do um, when we then uh, turn to sort of more explicit forms of self-consciousness is just we use concepts and language um, to bring that out, to make that explicit that the self is always already there. Um, And I wanted on the one hand to preserve uh, some insights here, which I think are right, but also um, wanted to modify that view by saying um, that it neglects an important distinction, namely the distinction that I make between uh, implicitly self-related information and explicit self-representation. So I think, uh, and and that's where the no self, coming back to your question now, comes Mm -hmm. in. Because um, I think that while it's true that there is information in the content of my perception that is related to myself or that concerns myself, for instance, concerning my possibilities for interacting with um, the objects in my my environment, uh, it's not true that the self as such is really there as part of the representational content. So the idea is that there's no self in the content of perception. Um, the content of my of perception is just, you know, the, the, my perception is about that object that I'm perceiving, the laptop, and um, I'm perceiving certain relational properties that the object has, namely being related to me. But um, one of the relata, namely myself, is not represented. It's to use an idea of John Perry that I find quite um, helpful in the um, in in getting to grip um, getting a grasp of this idea is that the self is a, an unarticulated constituent of the content of experience so he has this um, very interesting thought experiment uh, which i found very helpful here where he you know he says consider these people uh, called zealanders on zealand um, they live on this island and they have no conception of the existence of any other place in the world so now it's You know, assume that they're talking about the weather, they say things like it's raining. Um, Well, what are they referring to? In some sense, they're referring to Zealand, the place where they are. In fact, um, necessarily, they're referring to Zealand because they're not aware of any of the existence of any other place, and so there is no way in which they could be referring to any other place. And yet, when you look at their utterances, um, they never mention Zealand, they never even mention indexicals like here, uh, precisely because uh, there's no need for them to do that because they don't have any conception of any other place that they could possibly be talking about. And so um, Perry actually himself draws the analogy to, to thought about oneself. And I think it's, it's an apt analogy, the idea that, you know, because perception is always from my perspective, necessarily, there's just no point in actually representing myself in the content of perception. Yeah. So, so what my perception is about, the content of perception really just is the, the objects in In my environment and not myself, yet um, the content of perception is obviously relevant to me and to my possibilities for interacting with the objects. And so um, when we acquire the self-concept according to to the view that I want to propose is that we make explicit the self-relatedness that is implicit in the content of perception. Um, Another way of putting that, um, which is uh, um, the way that François Recanati puts it, which I adopt in my book, is that he says, um, look, there's a content of perception on the one end, and then there's a mode of perception on the other. And so um, the content of perception, again, is about the objects in my environment, but the way in which they are presented to me is such that – you know, they're given to me from or presented to me from my perspective. And so that's one way of understanding this notion of mode. It's, it's just from my egocentric point of view. And um, when I form an explicit I thought, such as I see the laptop in front of me, I make explicit this mode. I make explicit the fact that I experience the computer from my perspective in this particular way. That's relevant to myself. Um, But that doesn't mean that the self was there as part of the content of experience before. And so, um, you know, when I have this I thought, then the self is, of course, explicitly represented and is there when I I think I see the computer. Mm -hmm. But uh, oftentimes I don't think that, and in particular, um, infants who don't yet have conceptual abilities can't think it, and non-human animals who certainly already enjoy perceptual experience also can't think eye thoughts, um, and so I would say contra is that those animals and also infants at very very early stages before they can have this ability to form explicit eye thoughts, they're not really self-conscious in the sense of um, you know there is no self in their content of experience. Sorry, that
1: was very yeah. long. No, actually, no. I was uh, that was that was very clear, and I, I I wanted to let me just follow up for a second. So. So the the, the objects of, of perception are just the objects in the world and there's sort of self uh, there's a there's an ecocentric perspective that we always have on those and then mm-hmm. in at at some point uh, that sort of self-related information uh, becomes explicit self-representation. Right? Exactly. Okay, so um so then, what is so when you having it when you have explicit self representation? Um, what is the object of the thought at that at that point?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, so. Like I said before, what you perceive uh, um, objects and, and their properties, and some of which are relational properties, um, related to yourself. But you, as one of the relata, you're only there implicitly. And so then, when you form an explicit I thought, an explicit self representation, you make um, that explicit. And so you're ex- you're attributing to yourself the property, for instance, of. Um, being situated in a particular distance from the laptop, or of being able to interact with the laptop in a particular way, um, and so yeah, so then in that sense, you're thinking about yourself, and in particular with respect to whatever it it is that it, it, it essentially you're thinking. You know, you might be thinking, um, look, I I can't, I can reach the lid and close it, or I can't because it's too far away, and um, so you're thinking. Uh, of yourself in terms of that property of yours of being able of being in a position for instance to reach the object or not reach it or interact with it in a certain way Um, let me also say I mean one thing that might be slightly misleading too about the book um, in a way is that it doesn't quite put in so I focus a lot on on these um, sort of what I take to be well fundamental perhaps we can say fundamental Um, forms of thinking about oneself which then i think enable other ways of thinking about yourself but of course there it's not to say that we never think about ourselves as objects literally Um, so we can make ourselves an object of our thought and of our experience as well it's just that um if we weren't aware of ourselves as subjects in the first place, subjects being in a position to interact with our environment in a certain way, we couldn't form um, objects of uh, thoughts about ourselves as objects either, um, you know, because of this regress problem that I mentioned at the beginning, but um, obviously both kind of go hand in hand together. And I think the self-concept um, also in a way involves both mode, both sort of modes of thinking about oneself. That's why the kind of, The mirror test is kind of such a, well, I guess gives an important clue here because um, what happens when I learn to recognize myself in the mirror is really that I uh, combine this kind of internal mode of experience of myself that I have with this realization, oh, I'm also an object that can be perceived just like I can perceive objects. An object in the sense of being able to be identified by others and then also um, by myself, insofar as I can look at myself through the lens of others, so to speak. Um, okay. Sorry, maybe that might have been a bit. Yeah, no,
1: it's um, no, it's it's. So let let me just um, again follow up a little. So, mm-hmm. I mean, once once we're talking about. Self-reference. I mean, does you know? We, we we started talking about objects of perception. You know, ordinary things like books and and the the egocentric perspective that we we have on them, and that that becomes a uh, eventually somehow a, you know uh, some sort of reference to the self. And what my, I guess my question was: is at that point, or is perception the right sort of? Uh, uh, access or sense that we should be talking about. I mean, is it?
2: No. Yeah. No. So I mean, um, so at the level of self-reference, I think what we're concerned with is uh, is actually judgments. It's a form of you know, it's it's a form of judgment to explicitly self-attribute in these properties to myself. Um, and these judgments can be grounded in the perceptual experience, but I don't think that um, self-consciousness or, or thinking about that, oneself should be thought of in terms of um, in, in a sense of perceiving oneself or something like that. Because then we'd, we'd essentially be back to the subject-object model. Right. Um, which is not to say that we can't perceive ourselves, right? So, I mean, I can look at myself in the mirror, and of course, then I am perceiving myself. And that's one way of thinking about myself then as an object of perception. Um, but in the cases where I'm just looking at the laptop and then self-describing this thought, I'm seeing the laptop on the basis of just seeing the laptop. That's not a case of um, perceiving myself. Okay. Okay.
1: So so let's let's talk about the the transition here. I mean, we start. Uh, I mean, you talked about Jose Luis Bermudez's idea of the non-conceptual content. Um, and uh, you give a, you give a particular interpretation of the non conceptual content of uh, uh, you know a, a a baby or a pre linguistic infant um, who doesn't have concepts and yet in some sense does have some egocentric perspective for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, one of the things you do is to interpret. Non-conceptual content in terms of knowing how, rather right. than knowing that. Right. So yeah. that's that's one important step. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just what is non-conceptual? What what positive can one say about non-conceptual content? You know, you mm-hmm. know, we, we don't want to just say, well, it's just content that's not conceptual. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, but but beyond that, you also give a fairly. Uh, uh, well, maybe let me just let's let me start with that because the next question is just how one gets from the mm-hmm. non-conceptual uh, to the conceptual, right? So, yeah. so, so, take take the non-conceptual first. What is what is what is that on your view?
2: Yeah, yeah. Again, um, very uh, good and difficult question. I think I saw a quote from Davidson the other day uh, where he sort of. Um, mentioned that he's glad that he's not a developmental psychologist because he essentially has no idea how to talk about um, the uh, cognition of non-linguistic, non-conceptual creatures. Um, And he thinks it might even be an impossibility, in some sense, to to talk sensibly about it. Because obviously, you know, we're always, in talking about that, we always have to use concepts and we have to use and therefore think in language in some ways. And so it's very hard to get a grip on on these non-linguistic, non-conceptual forms of, um, yeah, apprehending the world in a certain sense. And I think it's also, I mean, this aspect of, you know, what really positively can we say about non-conceptual content? Um, I felt like, you know, correctly, um, you pointed out correctly, that it's sort of dissatisfying to just define non-conceptual content in opposition to conceptual content and so to just give a negative definition. So, and I felt that this idea of knowledge, how is one way of maybe approaching a positive account of non-conceptual content, but I don't take myself um, as having worked out a, a full theory at all, or not even sort of pro- approximating a theory of what non-conceptual content might be. So it's really just, Yeah a little bit of hand-waving that I do in the book at that point. But yeah, so, um, so the idea is, um, and I, and again, that's something that I found uh, in reading, for instance, uh, Adrian Cassin's work on non-conceptual content um, quite illuminating is that he says, look, there's just different ways um, of apprehending the world, different ways of interacting with the world. And not all of them um, are constrained by conceptual abilities and, um, And not all of them conform to what he calls the the norms of truth. They're not all truth evaluable. So when we talk about conceptual content, we can always um, ask, you know, well, is that representation true or false? Does it give an accurate um, picture of the way? things are. And with non-conceptual content, thinking about it in terms of knowledge, how sort of um, hints at the fact that we have a lot of ways of, of, you know, a lot of practical ways of interacting with the world that are not so much about, uh, are my representations true or false, but rather um, how skillful am I in uh, doing certain things? You know, can I ride the bike or or can I not ride the bike? Um, uh, And so I, I was trying to get to some of those insights by um, relating the notion of non-conceptual content to the notion of knowledge how Um, it's also I think uh, again respecting insights from phenomenology although I didn't um, sort of discuss these in detail you know when Heidegger for instance talks about being in the world and sort of you know seeing the world in terms of the things that, that are around us that are there for us um, ready for us to do something with in a certain way. I think it's very hard to kind of, or impossible to translate that kind of knowledge of how to interact with the things and the people in my environment to translate that into really something you
0: propositional conceptual. Um. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS?
1: uh let me get to, the in, in effect the sort of the meat of the book I would uh, at least as I think of it is um, is the, the your account of the transition right that's that's mm-hmm. kind of critical that's I think an important yeah. contribution to this literature um, in the book. Um, so we start with this implicitly self referential information, right mm-hmm. which you know the the uh, the idea you know we're born with an egocentric, perspective. Um, And, you know, so, you know, I I don't know which things will have that, but many things will that don't have language, that don't have concepts and so forth. And then there are steps to get us to the end game, which is, you know, the ability uh, to think about oneself, to, you know, use the word I and, and so forth. um, and you describe this, and this is just a very brief thing, as a process of redescription mm-hmm. um, over various um, various stages. Um, so, could you explain how you get from the from the beginning, you know, to this sort of yeah. actual full blown concept of the self?
2: Right, so I mean again you you write that this is kind of the heart of the book at the same time it 's also um, a part where a lot of questions remain open that i am, that i 'm continuing to work on um, but generally speaking, so this idea of representational redescription is um, an idea that i didn 't come up with on by myself but rather something that I found in the uh, literature on development of psychology. It um, was coined by Annette Camilla Smith, um, who's a developmental psychologist, and she doesn't talk about self-consciousness specifically, but she was just talking about cognitive development um, in more general terms. And she thinks that um, we have, you know, information implicit in forms of procedural knowledge or knowledge how, um, as I sort of tried to um, explain earlier. and um, she thinks that there's um, a process that makes available that information to that's initially kind of um, domain specific and again as she says implicit in forms of procedural knowledge. Um, that information is made increasingly available to other parts of the cognitive cognitive system via increasing levels of abstraction. Uh, which essentially then leads to more cognitive flexibility, to more domain generality at the expense of speed, automaticity, et cetera. It kind of um, relates a little bit to this two systems way of thinking about cognition that we find um, very prominently in the literature uh, at the moment, where the idea is that, you know, you have this um, fast you know, Kahneman's idea of this sort of thinking fast and slow. You have this fast way of thinking, um, which is based on heuristics, on automatic processes, um, which is, you know, very fast, but it's not very flexible and it's uh, prone to certain biases. And then you have the slow way of thinking, which is abstract, um, conceptual, but also much more cognitively demanding and so on. Uh, Except that what I like about Camille Smith's approach is that it goes beyond saying there are just these two ways and saying there's actually... Many levels in between. I and mean, she talks about um, there being four different levels, but I think her account of principle is open to there being many more than four. Um, and it also got, gets us beyond this kind of dichotomy that I find problematic in talking about non conceptual versus conceptual content, which again suggests that there's just these two ways that we have of um, apprehending the world. You know, one is Again, knowledge how it's procedural uh, non conceptual the other is um, conceptual abstract etc and um, I think a that leaves it mysterious how to think about the relation between the two, but it also doesn't quite give um, enough uh, it doesn't do justice to the actual complexity of of the cognitive beings that we are and so that's what I like about Camil Smith's approach It has these different levels, and so um, I try to then take. This idea of this gradual representational redescription, which she details um, with respect to cognitive development, generally speaking, and applying that then to the problem of self consciousness and the question of how do we get from perception that's non conceptual and has implicitly self related information to conceptual, um, explicit thinking about myself. Um, right. Yeah.
1: Maybe. Well, I mean, not. I was going to say it might be. It might be worthwhile if there's a. uh, I don't know if you have an example or a particular feature of the self that might get. You know, be the endpoint of one of these processes of redescription.
2: Yeah. um, Maybe actually, let me start with uh, actually not necessarily an example of self-consciousness, but rather an example, um, that's more general relating to cognitive development, which, which I personally found, um, very illuminating when I was reading Camila Smith's work. So she, um, talks about research with children, um, where they're asked to balance, um, sort of objects on a beam and sort of, um, you know, find the, find the. The center, kind of, of the object that makes it sit stable on on this beam, and as in many actually um, studies and development of psychology, with this uh, ability as well, you find you typically find a U curve kind of development. So that is. Um, there's um there's a point at which children can't do it then they certainly get very good at doing it and then suddenly they can't do it again when they get older and that's kind of weird right Mm -hmm. and so she tries to explain this is um precisely in these terms of representational free description. descriptions so what she says what happens initially is that you have this procedural this ability this knowledge how to balance certain objects but it only works um for particular objects. Um, so the way that the experiment works is that um, the objects are manipulated by um, by some, some have sort of a weight glued to one of their ends. And so, um, or sometimes the, the weight is hidden in, in one part of the object. And so the center isn't where you would normally expect it to be. Um, and so initially she has, the children just take each individual object, they, they look at each object as a separate problem and they just try to sort of balance it. Um, uh, and they're just using proprioception and feedback, uh, and they manage to balance each object individually on this beam. Um, sorry, I actually made a mistake in talking about the U-curve. Of course, the idea is that first you have the ability, then you don't, and then you have it again. I was sort of sorry, I was saying it the, the wrong way around yeah. before. Okay, so these very young children have this ability. And then suddenly um, they, they kind of lose it. What happens is um, they can suddenly they can only balance objects that actually have um, their center in their middle, um, and why is that? Well, she she talks about them developing some kind of theory in action. So they have made a lot of experience um, over the past few years with different objects, and they found that normally they balance at their center, and so they have no problems with objects that do, in fact that kind of proto-theory but when they confront objects that don't follow that theory they don't know what to do with them and they kind of just exclude that um, they put them aside and sort of just say okay that doesn't fit my model it doesn't fit my theory I don't know what to do with that and she thinks um, the, the theory as it were needs to become solidified bec- needs to become accessible enough to them for them to actually consciously access it and then consider the merits of the theory before they can then when they're older again incorporate data that isn't fitting um, and actually then sort of develop the correct theory um, of how objects balance. And so that expands this kind of U curve. And so the idea is that, it, again, at first you just you you're just relying on proprioception. You're relying on kind of ways of interacting with objects. Then once you've mastered that, you kind of try to extract somehow common features from your experiences, such as in this case, most objects balance at their center have their center of balance at their center. and then you use that theory, although you can't articulate it yet, it's not really conceptually available yet. it is somehow there. You have extracted something abstract from your previous interactions with the objects, which then guides your future interactions with them. Um, and then is- eventually that theory or that information becomes really consciously conceptually accessible, such that, that you can then really consider it's, it merits again. It merits again. And so the idea, the question then is, so what sort of triggers that or how do you prompt to, um, to form these more abstract representations? How, how are you prompted to form these more abstract representations? And um, I think that's actually one of the sort of still very much open questions But it seems to be somehow that in humans anyway, once we've reached a level of behavioral mastery with something, we're trying to kind of understand it at another deeper, more abstract level. Um, And one thing that now relates in some sense to what I was trying to do in the book, but that I wasn't really, um, that I hadn't really worked on sufficiently yet in the book and that I'm trying to work on now is the role of social interactions actually for that um the the kind of role that social scaffolding has actually Jennifer Greenwood, whose some um, interview I heard on your programme and that which prompted me to read her book actually. So she talks about social scaffolding. And I, I think that's very important to to uh, look at social interactions um but so now coming back to self-consciousness so i think that with self-consciousness we also go through a process like that so the child has um ways of interacting with the world and that contains like we said earlier implicitly self-related information about um, the child but somehow it's not focused on extracting that information as you know being about the self Um, and then what prompts that extraction in the case of self-consciousness Well, um, actually, social interaction, uh, although I wasn't thinking about it as much in terms of social scaffolding yet, but more in terms of, um, well, why would we actually start thinking about ourselves as subjects or objects in the world, as separate entities, as beings? Um, Right. Going going back to, um, no, sorry, I think I made this unnecessarily complex, um, but... Okay, perhaps. No, well, I was I was going to follow up with the uh, social aspect. Yeah. So,
1: so just yeah, just go ahead.
2: So um, you might have to edit this a little bit. I'm not sure, but so going back to um, maybe going back to Perry that we talked about earlier, right? So he, he has this idea. Okay, Zealanders have no conception of other places, so they're necessarily referring to Zealand, but they're not explicitly referring to it. Um, when would they explicitly refer to their location? Or why is it that we actually have indexical notions like here and that we do explicitly refer to locations? Well, obviously, because we do have a conception of other places. And so sometimes we need to draw a contrast between one location and another. Um, Like it might be raining where you are, but it's not raining here and so on. Um, And actually, Bermudez has a similar idea uh, as well in his book when he says self-consciousness is essentially a contrastive notion So what we're doing when we're thinking explicitly self-conscious thoughts is we're contrasting ourselves with others. Um, And so the idea is that once I develop a conception of there being other beings with their own perspective on the world that might differ from my own, uh, it makes then sense for me to think about my perspective on the world explicitly as such. So now what I was trying to do in the book is combine these two basic ideas. So this um, general model of cognitive development that Kamila Smith sketches, where she has these different stages of um, representational abstraction, mm-hmm. um, and this idea that self consciousness is related to intersubjectivity in the sense that it's only once I become aware of others that I also, at the same time, become aware of myself as such as being different from these others, and and what what chapter so chapter five tries to Developed this uh, more general idea based on Kamilov Smith, and in chapter six in, of my book, tries to put these two ideas together and then sketch the developmental trajectory for self consciousness um, through different stages. And I try to illustrate that then by appealing to developmental psychology, sort of distinguishing what happens, for instance, when the child. Um, learns to engage in acts of joint attention at the age of nine months, um, how is that different from being able to recognize yourself in the mirror and how is that different, again, from really showing um, explicit abilities for empathy and then later really developing a theory of mind and thinking about others and yourself explicitly as representational beings, for example.
1: Right. I mean, that was that was one of the things that, as, as you were talking um, and the recognition of... of, of other beings that have a, that have a different perspective, or, or uh, the recognition that there are other things that kind. Of, well, you can't. You wouldn't want to say other beings that do what I do in terms of relationship to the world, because that would be too too sophisticated. But um, uh, do we need to have a theory of mind before we have a concept of the self?
2: Uh, yeah, good question. Um, it depends a bit what you mean by concept of the self. So I mean, one of the things um, that I uh, that, that I've that I've come to sort of think, um, as I was writing the book is that these yes or no answers um, are not really available to us in some level, you know, I said earlier, we, cognition is very complex um, and, and there's l- many different levels or degrees. I'm not sure, levels or degrees, I'm not always happy with those expressions, but yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, I think you can also distinguish degrees of self-awareness. Um, and So it depends really what you mean when you when you talk about the self-concept and, and the self-descriptions that you're performing by applying the self-concept. I think there's um, sort of relatively basic, simple um, self-descriptions that you can Perform in the absence of a full-blown theory of mind, but then really thinking of yourself as a being that has a representational states that has mental states—that of course, by definition, implies some kind of theory of mind anyway. And that theory of mind would then apply to yourself and to others. But yeah, I mean, the, the term theory, "theory of mind" of course itself um, has now, in the cognitive science literature, become uh, a matter where people, you know, like in um, Appleby and uh, and Stephen Butterfield talk about something like primitive mind reading um, primitive theory of mind so even there there's different degrees and different levels which makes it very hard to sort of answer a question like that in a sort of yes or no sort of way, of way. <laughs> right right I, I guess
1: you know I'm yeah because there's I mean for some people of course it's passing a false belief task and mm-hmm. for others there's like Butterfield and you know, it's something a bit more 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 primitive as you as you mentioned. Well let me let me ask let me I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Okay, I was I was going to ask about um, you know, there's been a lot of work recently on you know on theories of the self, um, mm-hmm. as well as uh, the nature of agency, which is kind of lurking in the background here. Although I don't I don't know if we'll get to that. But um, so there's a number of different theories on offer of of the the self. Um, you know, the the narrative self, the Dennett or 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 some people, you know, as you mentioned before, that the self is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Sean Gallagher has a work on, you know, the sort of phenomenology of the self. Mm-hmm. Um, how does your uh, your view relate to these different sorts of ways of, of thinking about the self? You know, whatever it is that we end up with when we refer, when we use, you know, I... You know the the first person pronoun. There's mm-hmm. different a lot of different views of that. Do, does do you have any preferences among these? Are are you completely neutral among them, or are there some that appear to be uh, more justified, perhaps? Um, you know, given the way you think that the self develops, or the or the or self consciousness develops.
2: Mm. Yeah, so I mean, in the book, I don't really take an explicit stance on, you know, the metaphysical question of what really is the self. Um, so, and I don't really have a theory on that either. It's more, perhaps, more an intuitive way at, at that point um, of approaching this question, where I tend to think, yeah, the self is, is the person. Um, but I, I also think um, that a lot of these. Different theories that each of these different theories um, points to something right and and important. So, I mean, obviously, I think it is true that we do um, that we do uh, have a narrative self-conception. Yeah, we tell stories about ourselves and about others, and I think that is an essential part of our of what then comes to be our personal identity and, and what maybe even constitutes personal in a certain way and so I think in a sense there is this narrative self but as I was saying earlier I think the phenomenologists certainly have a point too when they say look that can't be all there is to us and in fact Dan Zahavi tries to combine you know ideas of the narrative self with this kind of more primitive more basic notion of um, uh, of self-awareness um, that he, I think you call the phenomenological self that Gallagher also talks about I think there's there's certainly that As well, although um, I sort of disagree with them when they talk about these sort of very primitive notions of self awareness. I think we should distinguish between awareness and self awareness, um, just for the reasons uh, mentioned earlier, namely that awareness, while containing implicitly self related information, is not a form of explicit self representation. And I'd like to reserve the term self consciousness for the latter. That's partly a terminological question, though. Um, leaving that to the side, I think there's an important intuition in, in phenomenological conceptions of the self that I would want to preserve. Um, and, yeah, so I think all of these theories also, you know, theories of uh, talking about the self um, as being, you know, the body playing an important role there. I mean, I, I give quite a lot of space to bodily experience and bodily self-awareness, in my book as well. I think that's also an an important part of the self in a way. And when we think I thoughts, you know, we can, we can think in different ways about ourselves. We can think, as I said earlier about ourselves more as the subject of experience. We can also make ourselves the object of our thinking and of our experience. And we can emphasize different aspects of selfhood or personhood that um, we want to think about. You know, we can think about our bodies. We can think about um, our life stories or histories um, we can think about um, particular mental states that we're in or that we've been in. So, yeah, um, I guess I, I feel that a lot of these theories, yeah, there's not really competition necessarily between them. Okay. Um, there, there is one question. I was, as you were talking earlier,
1: giving the example of, of- – of kids who, you know, find a center of gravity to balance various objects, and then abstracting to say, "Oh, the center," and then making all kinds of mistakes until they manage to make their theory a bit more explicit. And I was, I was trying, to, I was, as you're talking, I was thinking about um, about character traits mm-hmm. and. Um, and that makes – so one of, one of the open questions that you raise, uh, you know, towards the end of the book is about, um, uh, you know, the integrity of the self-concept over time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, character traits, of course, are, are – you know, would have to be any, any story about that, would have to say something about character traits because mm-hmm. those are presumably – uh, you know, I'm, I'm. You know, maybe you should tell me. Um, yeah. Abstracted in some way from mm-hmm. interactions with social with other people. Yeah. Uh, but so, how, how do character traits fit in here? And then uh, there there are people, of course, in social psychology who you know deny there is such a thing as character, which isn't yeah. necessarily contradictory to you know, the role of character traits, you might say. So could you, could you, you you don't really talk about this much, so I'm pushing a little bit beyond what the book says. No,
2: I'm glad that you're actually asking that question because it brings me actually um, to something that that I really wanted to mention in this interview, even though, as you say, it wasn't really part of the book. Um, So in the book, I really, what I really focus on is um, just trying to, to get a handle on this ability to really think explicit thoughts about my current mental and bodily states uh, and perhaps um, very basic sort of memory states but that isn't really my focus in the book so I'm really thinking, you know, what, what concerns me in the book is this question, how do I move from seeing an object to then self-describing that perceptual state and sort of thinking I am seeing this object there um, and for that, you know, I was appealing to things like, you know, how, how do you do you develop a theory of mind, essentially, um, through social interaction and so on? But that doesn't really touch at all on this question of, of character traits, like you say. And I think that's an important point. And it's also an, um, it's actually something that I've started to to think about a little bit more more recently. Um, at the moment, I'm teaching a seminar on on different kinds of self-knowledge. And we've been reading some of the work um amongst others by Kasim Kassam, for instance, who emphasizes, you know, that, look, there is this kind of self-knowledge that philosophers talk about a lot, and which I, in my book, talk about a lot, you know, like self description of basic bodily um, mental states. And that's, I think it is interesting because it's, as I said earlier, fundamental for our other ways of talking about ourselves. And so I think it's, and it has these special characteristics of features that other types of knowledge don't have such as, for instance, immunity to error from misidentification and other things which we didn't really talk about, but which make this kind of special. Um, but I think he has a very good point, too, when he says, look, but there's also um, other types of self-knowledge, which uh, is, you know, when... Uh, when the Greeks talk about know, know yourself um, and when you talk about lay people, when you talk to them about self-knowledge, what they associate with self-knowledge, that's not really touched upon by these theories. And that, that includes things like, how do I know what kind of person I am? What kind of character traits do I have? And do I even have stable character traits? Or am, are my actions more driven by situational factors? Right. So that's one of the theories that I think you were mentioning that situationists say that character traits don't really exist. They don't really explain our actions because it's really depending on the situation and the context, what we're doing Mm -hmm. Um, with appeal to several empirical studies in moral psychology. And that is what he calls, what Kasam calls the sort of substantial self-knowledge, which is, is very often uh, relies on actually observing ourselves. On it relies on testimony. Re- relies on really taking maybe a more detached stance on ourselves and really taking a hard look at our actual at the things that we actually do, rather than um, just at the things that we believe in our that what we take to be our current mental states and things like that. Um, And yeah, so it was important to me to point out that although that's not my focus in the book and I I focus on not thinking of oneself as a subject in the book, um, that's by no means to say that that's the only way of thinking about yourself or even the most important way. Um, Now with respect to the question, do character traits exist or not? um, I think it would require another full hour interview to fully debate this question. Um, you know, Based on my reading of the literature in involved psychology, I don't think that these studies um, that people point to when they deny the existence of character traits, that they really um, are fully convincing and that they really undermine this notion of character traits as it is developed in, for instance, you know, virtue ethics and, and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but we but it certainly requires often hard and difficult work to know what character we have, and we can be mistaken with that. And um, it might perhaps be, in certain situations, less explanatory for the kinds of things that we do um, than we normally think. And so, the, yeah, there's all kinds of fascinating questions with respect to that. And how do children um, learn about their characters? Uh, again, you know, I think that's... Um, That requires a lot of social interaction, uh, talking to others, um, asking others, you know, what you think, or or actually just getting feedback from others, you know, about things that they do. Um, And, yeah, and and kind of looking at oneself through the eyes of others and, and sort of really finding out what kind of person am I.
1: Good. Well, um, uh, we we're sort of out of time, actually. Uh, yeah, so, so many
2: questions. I know, and
1: there's so many questions to to ask, but you know, yeah. hopefully the listeners will will look at your book uh, on their own. Um, and there's a lot more to talk about. Um, but uh, to end the end the interview, um, could you say a bit about what you're working on uh, at the moment? I mean, have you are you continuing with the same you sort of mentioned before you're you're going to some of the open questions, but um, mm-hmm. uh, what what are you
2: working on now? Yeah, so um, several different things, um, but yeah, one of the questions that we talked about earlier is, you know, how do we get from this uh, knowledge? How knowledge, how to the knowledge that uh, put differently, how do we acquire concepts, how do we enter to, to use a phrase by sellers that I like, the space of reasons more generally speaking, independent of um, of self-consciousness, that's a question that I'd like to look more at in particular with respect to that question like I said, um, I want to focus a bit more on this role of social interaction, on you know social scaffolding and also education um, and the role that education really plays for that um, so sort of building on on ideas um, by people like Jennifer Greenwood but also David Beckhurst and, and, and a lot of other people so that's um, that's a question that I'm interested in and I'm actually working with a colleague on also thinking about more practical implications that that might eventually have for the way in which um, we teach children how to think for example in um, daycares centers and schools and so on. Yeah. Um, and, and the other question is really um, staying a bit closer um, to self-consciousness. You know, like I mentioned, what other types of self-knowledge and thinking about um, ourselves are there, and, and how do we sort of bring together these different forms of self-consciousness? And also in relation to that, um, since I say in the book, look, there's different levels of self awareness. Um, In parallel to that, I try to spell out different levels or different ways of being aware of others. And so that's another question that I'm interested in. How do various theories of social cognition, you know, some listeners might be familiar with this debate between simulation theory, 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 narrative, uh, practice, hypothesis, the interaction theory, um, you know, all these kind of uh, theories, how do they relate to each other? Um, What kind of a account can we give of the different ways of knowing not just ourselves but also others so yeah that's that's a lot
1: that's <laughs> <So> a lot <laughs> i wish you i wish you luck with that but um yeah, yeah. uh i appreciate you taking the time now to, to talk with new books in philosophy and good luck with all those different projects
2: yeah thank you very much and thanks very much for the opportunity to um, talk about my work and i apologize for some of the long in some of my answers. No no, no reason for that. You've been listening to my
1: interview with Christina Musholt, Professor of Cognitive Anthropology at Leipzig University. We've been talking about her new book, Thinking About One's Self, From Non-Conceptual Content to the Concept of a Self, which is out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Fichtor. This is New Books in Philosophy, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks again for listening.